A Focused Summary of Part 1, Chapter 1 of Silas Marner Chapter 1 begins with an account of a species of alien-looking men who would sometimes appear in the remote districts of England and excite suspicion among their rustic inhabitants. Pallid and undersized, stooped under their strange burdens, the weavers, men of strange skills and unknown origins, were viewed with distrust and driven into solitude. Such a man was Silas Marner, a linen weaver who worked in a stone cottage among the hedgerows of Raveloe. Boys from the village were drawn to Silas's window by a combination of fearful fascination with the mysterious loom and scornful superiority for its eccentric operator. On those occasions when he became aware of them, Silas would fix a gaze on them with his protuberant brown eyes that would make them take to their legs in terror. They might have heard their parents suggest that Silas possessed dark powers that allowed him to cure folks' illnesses, and that he might not always be relied upon to use for good. These sorts of superstitions lingered in Raveloe, which, being an hour's journey from any turnpike, was uninfluenced by new voices and current opinions. Raveloe was an important-looking little village, with a fine old church, a well-walled orchard, and a few large brick-and-stone homesteads. There were no manor-houses here, but its chiefs made enough money from their bad farming to live well. Silas Marner had come to the village fifteen years before. He was a pallid young man with short-sighted brown eyes. There was nothing about his appearance that would have been considered strange by people of average culture and experience, but to the people of Raveloe he had a peculiar look that corresponded with his unusual occupation and reclusive lifestyle. Also, Jem Rodney, the mole-catcher, once found him standing still, with limbs stiff, hands clutched, and eyes set like a dead man's. Just as Rodney had made up his mind that the weaver was dead— Marner came all right, said good night, and walked away. Some called it a fit, others said it was a stroke, but Mr. Macy surmised that Marner's soul would sometimes loose from his body and go off to learn his mysterious charms. It was this sort of vague fear that protected Marner from persecution. That, and the usefulness of his trade, counteracted the villagers' repugnance and suspicion. Time had rolled on with no change to the villagers' impressions. After fifteen years, they still said the same things about him, only not so strongly or often. The only new thing they said was that over the course of those years, Master Marner had laid by a fine sight of money. While opinions about him and his daily habits might not have changed, Marner's inward life had undergone a metamorphosis. Marner had come from the little hidden world of a religious sect known as the Church of Lantern Yard, where he enjoyed close fellowship and was regarded as a man of exemplary life and ardent faith. Once, at a prayer meeting, he had fallen into a mysterious, unconscious rigidity for more than an hour. His minister and fellow members preferred to see spiritual significance in this phenomenon rather than seek a medical explanation. But interpreting this significance was difficult, since Silas had no vision during this trance, and was too honest to invent one. Among the members of his church was a young man named William Dane, with whom Silas had long lived in the closest of friendship. 
Dane, too, was regarded as a shining example of youthful piety, though he could be severe on his weaker peers, and superior to his own teachers. But to Silas he was flawless. The defenseless, deer-like gaze of Silas was contrasted with the slanting, self-complacent eyes of William Dane. The two often talked about the prospect of salvation. Silas felt only a hope mingled with fear, while William possessed an unshaken assurance inspired by a dream. It seemed to Silas that their friendship endured even the formation of a new and closer attachment. He had become engaged to a woman named Sarah. It was at that time that Silas's cataleptic fit occurred, and while most held it to be a sign of divine favor, William alone averred that it looked more like a visitation from Satan. Silas felt no resentment, but only pain at his friend's doubts. Soon after, Sarah showed signs of shrinking and dislike, but when he asked her whether she wished to break off their engagement, she denied it. At this time, a senior deacon was taken ill, and Silas and William took turns tending him by night. The old man seemed to be on the road to recovery, when, one night, Silas noticed that his breathing had ceased. Examining him, Silas found that he had been dead some time. Wondering if he had fallen asleep on his watch, Silas looked at the clock. It was four in the morning, though William was supposed to have relieved him at two. Silas went to seek help, returning with some friends. At six o'clock, William appeared with the minister and summoned Silas for an inquiry at Lantern Yard. Silas was seated in the vestry, with the eyes of those who to him represented God's people fixed upon him, and he was subject to interrogation and accusation. His pocket-knife had been found in the bureau by the deacon's bedside, and the little bag of church money that had lain there was gone. At first mute with astonishment, Silas declared that he knew nothing about the knife, that he had no money but his own savings, and that he knew God would clear him. The minister called the proof against him heavy, observing that he was the only one there the night before, since Dane was ill and could not take his place as usual. Silas wondered whether maybe he had been asleep or under one of his spells when the thief came. A search was made, and William Dane found the bag with the church money tucked behind a chest of drawers in Silas's room. He exhorted his friend to confess, but Silas only looked at him with reproach and said, God will clear me. Suddenly, a flush came over Silas's face. Gazing upon his unfaithful friend, he said, I remember now, the knife wasn't in my pocket. He would explain no more, but would only say again, God will clear me. At Lantern Yard, taking legal measures in such cases was contrary to the principles of the church. Instead, they resolved to pray and draw lots. Silas knelt with his brethren, sure that his innocence would be certified by divine intervention. But the lots declared that Silas was guilty. He was suspended from the church, to be readmitted only if he confessed and repented. Silas rose, walked toward William Dane, and said in a voice shaking with agitation that William had been in possession of Silas's knife, that he had stolen the money, that he had woven a plot to frame Silas, and that for all that he still prospered, because there is no just God. 
Everyone shuddered at this blasphemy. William asked them to judge whether or not this was the voice of Satan, and told Silas he could do nothing but pray for him. Poor Marner went out with despair in his soul and a shaken trust in God. He thought to himself bitterly that Sarah would cast him off too, since she must either believe the testimony against him or renounce her religion. Marner was unable to separate his religious feeling from its forms, and rather than questioning the practice of drawing lots, he questioned his faith. Marner went home and sat alone in despair, with no impulse to go to Sarah and persuade her of his innocence. The next day, he took refuge from his benumbing unbelief by working at his loom. A few hours later, the minister arrived with a message from Sarah that the engagement was at an end. Marner received the news mutely and went back to his loom. In little more than a month later, Sarah was married to William Dane, and Silas had departed the town.